0: Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Hugh Matawala to the show. In addition to having one of the coolest names that we've had on the podcast, Hugh is the Managing Director at DNX Ventures. DNX is an early stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley and in Tokyo that invests exclusively in B2B companies. They recently closed a $315 million fund during the pandemic. In this episode, we cover two main themes. First, the opportunity for startups in the B2B space. How else do you make that big of a bet and get the limited partners to invest, again, during a global pandemic? It was obviously in motion prior, but still impresses and signals the opportunity. Second, I get Q's perspective on what they were looking for in their startups and in their founders. He also had an interesting thought on how they have to get to know the founders virtually and why there has been some benefit to this. There is consistency from what we heard with Tim McLaughlin, general partner of co founder Capital, back in episode 68, but there are also some differences as well. I think you'll enjoy this podcast. As a favor, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe with your platform of choice. I would greatly appreciate it. Now, on to the interview. <laughs> Hey, good morning, Q. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Brett. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. I've definitely been looking forward to recording this episode as, as the audience knows we talk B2B and almost exclusively B2B unless there's some cutover and you know with what you and, and the firm have done Which I, I'm not gonna spoil that. I, I think this is going to be a, you know, a value-packed episode so Welcome and to get us started, you know, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about you and and what you're working on today?
1: Thank you. Yes. So, you know, I go by Q and and many people go, whether it's a Star Trek Q or, or, or the James Bond, I prefer the James Bond one. But the reason for the name is because I spent about 11 years straight when I came out of school at Qualcomm and I'm basically an operator by by nature, and so I did engineering, leading chipsets, and you know, fo- uh, mobile phone base station designs, etc. And then half of that time at Qualcomm was spent as product management, business development, deploying some of these new technologies. At that time, it was three G in into things into places like uh, Japan, South Korea, Verizon, and you know, a couple of other places, and also some technologies into uh, at that time OnStar and um, you know compact laptops uh, before there was iot so that was essentially the background i came out of it and uh, in the last couple of years at qualcomm i was also finishing up my business school and there was this fire that was there like you know when i joined qualcomm i had real fun because it was a small startup really in the in the early 90s magic. and i wanted to recreate that magic once more so i went off to startup land and i was part of two startups i was not the founder but I always uh, either was doing product management or had uh, marketing kind of roles. And uh, it was through those two startups that I fell onto the dark side, which is uh, venture capital. So I'm really an operator in the guise of a VC, but uh, that's, that's the brief story. And so it was 2007, 2008, around that timeframe, when um, some of the folks who had invested in my startup and I got really close together, in terms of we thought the same way, same wavelength on what we want to do for entrepreneurs, et cetera. And so we ended up joining hands and said, well, you know, let's start a new fund. I mean, how ignorant were we? Uh, <laughs> because th- that's the day that lehman crashed. And, oh, uh, yeah. you know, you were looking at each other and saying, oh, boy, what do we do here? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, great firms are created during those kind of moments, the moments of crisis. That was the global financial crisis at that time instead of going and getting you know other jobs we kind of hung in and uh, it took us about 3 years before we could get a measly humble 20 million dollars together and uh, we started investing but we had the core focus of B2B and i think you know along the journey we met some great entrepreneurs who delivered some you know awesome returns and on the on the backs of those fantastic people we were then able to you know, raised several funds and our latest fund is now, you know, $315 million. We The team grew from, you know, three people to 20 people. And we now have much better platform and, and support for our portfolio company CEOs that we didn't have back then. But that's a, that's a brief background, my personal background. DNX Ventures itself is an early stage B2B focused fund we invest in two geographies, uh, US and Japan. And we'll get to the reasons why specifically those two. In US, we do you know, a lot of, uh, I would say, cybersecurity, enterprise software and cloud infrastructure. We do a lot of deep tech uh, investments. And then we have practices for also fintech and, and retail tech. In Japan, we primarily focus on enterprise SaaS. A lot of SaaS enablement that happens, you know, on top of cloud services, but this might be things like marketing automation, sales automation, or digitization of traditional industries, like construction and healthcare and things like that. But we'll go into all of that stuff deeper, but I just wanted to give you a broad brush of what DNX is.
0: Yeah. And that's, and I don't know if it was timing, luck, or you make your own luck, but you know, the, and you kind of understated the 315 million you know dollar fund exclusively focused on you know early stage b2b is, is huge obviously we've seen different investments going after SaaS because it's you know sexy but i mean the fact is you guys chose to head down and i've been on the pillar for a couple of years that transformation needs to happen in the b2b space so yeah, and maybe it was because you grew up in the b2b space you guys decided to focus that first fund but you know maybe you can go into a little bit on i mean cause 315 is a Really large fund for early stage B2B, and especially you closed it during the pandemic or finalized. Most of the fundraising was probably done before. So maybe you could touch on a little bit of the, the the why and then the how during the the timing.
1: Yeah. No, we started before we started raising before the pandemic, but what we saw is two things happen. One is acceleration, and second is we had set ourselves a target for 250 to 75, and we overshot it. And I think there are there are several you know reasons uh, for this. One is the pandemic has shown that everybody is now going to be working from their home offices, Starbucks, uh, you know, all of that stuff. So essentially, the the requirements for whether it's software, whether it's you know other things that are going to be distributed, cloud security. All of that stuff is going to be super important. I mean, essentially, what happened was somebody took the enterprise, blew it up, and make it made it a distributed. Uh, the home is now the distributed enterprise. So now, what does that mean for everything that's underlying below? You know, from cybersecurity all the way to cloud tools, DevOps, all of that stuff. So that that was, you know, one big factor I think that that we saw. Number two is, you know, our performance, especially on the Japan side, was just phenomenal. I mean. There was so we had returns to back uh, from that we had. Japan is going through like a, a you know obviously a massive kind of resurgence uh, from the deflationary period in the last uh, decade. Macroeconomics wise, Japan has been fantastic, uh, but at the same time, you you you've also got the startup ecosystem really bloom. So I'll just list you know a couple of reasons. So that was the second reason uh, of having. A very good financial track record. Number three, I would say, is you know laser focused on B two B. We are not, you know, we, we understand that we are not the best consumer focused VC, and we mm. we don't understand marketing brands. So I think that laser focused on both B two B and the sectors within the B two B I think works in our favor as well. So that was some of that was some of the reasons uh, you know that this thing accelerated. I think if we were on our first one, this was the first fund. I think you know it would be the same thing. What I told you in two thousand and eight, it would have taken us a couple of years. Right. Hey, do uh, you guys? This is just a PowerPoint. Where is the track record of, or where is actually the team that's going to do this? So I think several several of the factors came together.
0: Yeah. And it makes sense. And like I said, I've been kind of on the mountaintop for the last couple of years, especially when I was in management consulting, that the digital transformation is coming. The buyers are going to force change. Either you're going to do it or a competitor is coming up, your competition is going to figure figure it out. So I'm curious, too, from from your perspective on... You know from technology since you're investing mostly in technology to the adoption of technology within b2b firms so if you look at the technology curve it's accelerating with the cool new tools and you just like sales tech stacks and mark and all that but most of these B2B companies aren't using them yet. So how do you, again, this is just down that rabbit hole we got to talk about. I'm just curious, from your perspective, how do you see the adoption rising from these B2B firms? Or is it just betting on maybe earlier or younger companies adopting quicker than maybe some of the old legacy B2B firms?
1: Right. <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, you've got to combine the B2B with the DX, which is a digitization uh, thing that's going on. And if I understand the question right, I think the underlying trend, in addition to all all the things that we talked about, people moving to cloud, all that stuff, is also these old traditional industries that are actually moving towards digitization. I think that has to do a lot with things like you might not have enough skilled workers or you want to reduce costs um, or, for example, moving to dx is actually going to give you a much better lens into customer uh, needs or customer enablement and things like that so give you a few examples we've we've seen this trend in construction uh, for example in japan or for example in things like uh, pharmacies how people when when they actually go in and say hey i want this medication well they've got to ask you eight or ten different questions on, on how you want to do that well digitize that entire process and make sure that you're not going to have allergic reactions you know to something so taking constructions pharmacy um, fleet management we, we've just seen across the board uh, everything that management consultants like yourself or mckinsey or you know used to preach hey you could have to digitize well it's no longer fortune 100 digitizing it's essentially the entire SMB segment as well now saying, hey, I'm going to digitize because the cost is a monthly fee, a monthly SaaS fee. It's not millions of dollars of Oracle products that I've got to put in and then bring consultants in to implement it. It's a much lower cost to digitize. I don't know if I went down the different rabbit hole than the rabbit hole you were trying to go into, but I'm happy to pull myself back out. (laughs) No, no, that was
0: good. I I mean, I think that that, exactly the world is digitizing. And, you know, one of the things you know, growing up and living in the enterprise world for the long time in the different operating units, right? So between sales, everybody talks about the misalign between sales and marketing, but I think if you've got operating budget, these larger companies, between sales, marketing, maybe demand generation, customer success, product, all have misaligned goals. And so all of a sudden, now you've got to come in and say, all right, we're going to digitize the business. It's really hard. And I, I don't want to minimize how hard that is. And that's kind of some of the stuff I've been preaching and, and writing about is, you know, this is an opportunity for startups to come in and say, look at some of these that are really slow at migrating. And you have an opportunity because unless the C-level or the board of directors makes this a top priority, you may get one or two groups, but that's not going to
1: solve the problem. So no, I, I think that's I, where you get, Right. Right, and and so I think your you know there are your questions has your question has two parts. One is the companies that are being born post pandemic, and then there are companies that were already that already existed uh, pre pandemic, and so we've we've seen changes on on both sides. The the things that you talked about, like sales enablement and marketing, uh, whether it's attribution or building. You know, things like marketing cloud cloud on top of a CRM like a Salesforce, all of those things were happening. But I think for those companies, what ended up happening for us uh, is that the founders and the management teams adapted really well to how to sell to the B2B space. Uh, I think we'll talk about that, where those companies did not anticipate a pandemic, but reacted really well uh, on changing whether it was indirect selling or whether it's using webinars. Or in the case of Japan, you don't even need to, you know, Japan has done an awesome job. Only 1,000 deaths so far compared to our 225 and rising, 225,000 and rising. So Japan has not been as affected in terms of the founders and and the B2B sales uh, folks. But so it's the pre-pandemic companies, and then you've got the companies that were born at this time. Well, the companies born at this time uh, bring in a different DNA. You're going after remote work from day one. You don't need to have all engineers based in the valley, right? You could essentially you know, figure out all around the US, wherever is the best engineer or you know, hopefully a similar time zones because it gets difficult sometimes. But so those two, those two are also an interesting subject for us to speak about.
0: Yeah, I think that would almost be another whole podcast episode we could go on to. But you know, that's kind of where I want the, the audience to think about this is those opportunities and how you go to market is different than maybe what you've done traditionally. Because I do find a lot of the B2B entrepreneurs or founders tend to come from the corporate side first. Either they couldn't get a problem solved, and they're starting to solve it themselves. And so they kind of grew up with, you know, I need to hire a salesperson, I need to do marketing. But you know, the fact that Everybody has now been remote. You're not getting that, as they say, the the cat back in the bag or the rabbit back in the hat because people have figured out if there's a better way to work. And we'll find there's gonna be a happy medium at, at at some point. So so I think that's a maybe a good transition because I definitely want to get into with the size of the fund, you're now on fund three. To get your perspective on what have been you know some of the companies you've invested in, what are you looking for in those entrepreneurs? And as they're starting to build their businesses, what should they be thinking about? What have you found that's you know made success? Is it just the ideas, the people, some combination of the two? I'd love to hear it from your, your
1: perspective. Absolutely. Uh, so we'll talk about both the regions, U.S. and Japan, what we're investing in. For for our, for fund three, and in in Japan the focus is more on digitization of the traditional enterprises and uh, a lot of I would say things that are above the cloud enablement layer uh, on the SaaS platforms. Whether it's marketing, sales automation uh, that continues to be a good focus, but digitization of traditional industries is is looking really good. In the U.S. we are. You know, this whole trend of remote work is, has been very good in terms of us thinking in terms of edge computing, in terms of uh, cloud cybersecurity, zero trust type of things. Uh, And also, you know, some automation, like we just invested, for example, in a company in Austin, which is building robots for hospitals so that we can essentially get nurse efficiency. There's a shortage of nurses during COVID and it's always been there, but you know, COVID actually even amplifies that more. So those are some of the the big kind of trends that that we have been investing in. In terms of, I would say, stage, we tend to be. You know, our, our new fund is very much a C plus and CVZ uh, category. Mm-hmm. We'll invest anywhere from a million to four million dollars, depending on. You know, whether you've got some revenue, whether you've got your product built. So, you know, one to four to start with, and then we'll follow it up, you know, up to a maximum of, say, $10 million during the life of the company. So C plus and A tends to be our, our, our good sweet spots.
0: And it tends to be and, a gap yeah. too, right? And at least in my limited time looking at it, right, that the, especially in the B2B space, what I've I've heard from you know, from the seed to the series A, it's a pretty good delta in a lot of cases. And you may get a good idea that's got some revenue. You may be able to sell into your network and build, you know, some good success cases, but, you know, maybe at a million, a million and a half in revenue. And a lot of the series A are looking at, you know, five to 10 million. All of a sudden you got probably a really good company that's maybe having trouble expanding, that gets kind of caught in the no man's land, if you will. So it looks like you guys are kind of focused on that area that, hey, there's a, we found a good idea. I'm assuming you've got some criteria for the entrepreneurs. Or are you more
1: focused on the, the idea when you're looking to invest? Right, our sweet spot as I said is C plus and A. What that means is the, these are entrepreneurs that are somewhere between zero to five million ARR. Okay, About five million ARR, I think there are way better VCs here in the valley who can who can help you blast and get you to 50. I think you know we will we actually would do really well helping entrepreneurs getting from that you know, initial to, to five million dollars. So what that what that essentially means is what is gonna be the the focus tends to be then this is a founder led sales, okay, yeah. in these initial stages, which means most likely. The founder is a technologist or or heavily technical person coming out from some of these larger corporates, whether it might be a Google or whatever, or it might be someone who's actually done a previous startup and they're coming out and doing it. But I think at that particular stage at zero to five stage you you pretty much are looking at the DNA of the management team that's really you know you obviously there are eight to ten different things, like, you know, what market are they going after? Is it really a pain, in you know, true pain that they're solving, sizing, and then how will they grow into another market? All of that stuff, absolutely. I mean, I think anybody you have on the podcast will, will basically go and write down those eight things uh, of what we need to see. But I think at this stage, uh, it's really important. So we can go down the rabbit hole of uh, what that management founding team makeup you know is is really important none of the companies will have exactly the same company a is going to have a different founding team b is going to have so what what we try to look for i think that that is a really important angle
0: yeah no and i'd love if you'd share if it's not (laughs) detected just to get an idea of what you guys are looking for because i know i know Certain industry market size, all that good stuff, you know, check the boxes, but, you know, maybe some of the intangibles that you're looking at, maybe, like I said, maybe it differs by team, but, you know, is there a, maybe certain key characteristics or criteria that you're looking for? Or is it just based on, hey, I've done this so many times, I, I've got an intuition about which of these teams are, are going to perform?
1: First of all, I don't, I don't like this idea of pattern matching that people talk. And patent recognition, because I think there's a little bit of a falsehood there that every every entrepreneur has to fit in this mold. Oh, I've seen this before, and this is what's going to happen. Right. I, you know, my firm belief is um, every entrepreneur, every company is a snowflake. You know, uh, totally different. So, what we have started doing in the last six months that we had not done before, and this is something that the, the pandemic really helped us think through is we bring in the founder for a for a socially distant lunch in our backyard. And then we go off for a walk and then it becomes like a 9 a.m. to 12 noon journey. And this is what used to be in the older times, 9 a.m. to 9.45. And then, you know, someone would knock at your door and say, then the next meeting is going to start, right? But now what you have is this entire good three hours to get to know the makeup of the founder. How does this person, you know, what, what makes this person tick? Why did they really start this particular adventure? Are they gonna just go and sell off if they get a 25 or a $50 million offer? Because some of these companies, you know, a, a Google or a Microsoft or someone is just gonna say, hey, I'll just buy it. You know, why did you grow? So we, we try to understand what makes them tick. We try to understand what is their hiring philosophy. You know, are they going to hire people, just friends of X, founder being X, or are they looking for more diversified workforce, both in terms of uh, uh, diversity, in terms of you know industries, in terms of gender, in terms of you know location? We just look for people who think that way, and then what we look for is what are the kind of sales and channel people that they're going to you know get in, and what is the strategy out out there because. You might find certain founders will will go towards name brands. Oh, so I'll hire the sales guy from Google. That doesn't make sense. This guy is used to selling with a Google brand on the card. Can you go hire actually a nobody who had no logo and grew the company, you know, from zero to twenty-five million dollars in ARR? That's the sales guy that you you really want to get. So yeah, I mean, we go through a series of. Uh, you know, kind of things in these couple of hours, and then we try to meet the the larger management team. We look for, when the management team is presenting, we look for very soft cues. How how are these founders actually in meeting, behaving with each other, right? Are there, we, we do want, uh, what do you say, similar vision. Do you both see the world in the same way? And You guys can disagree, but is that disagreement in a respectful way? Is somebody just hogging the time 95% of the time and giving the other guy only 5%? So there might be, we can see that, you know, sometimes down six months or a year down the line, there's going to be some resentment that's going to happen. So we try to just look for those, you know, soft things, you know, much earlier on. But I think the pandemic has really helped. To give us more time to spend with them, and I think the entrepreneurs, frankly, appreciate it because they feel this is going to be an eight to ten year journey with a VC, and do I want to be with this VC? So I think it's about two way street. Yeah. But here it is: we we gave you off some of our secret of how, how we've been doing in the last uh, six months. The secret sauce. Now I'm I'm
0: with you. I'm a big believer in in the the person first, right? And you can teach certain skills and things to help grow and you know, one of the things I can't remember who I, I heard a, a VC talking about somewhere that they love, you know, brother and sister co-founders, right? Because they can get after each other but at the end of the day, they move on in 10 minutes and they, they have it out, they get it on the table, they move forward, which I, in a roundabout way, less elegant way is kind of what you were talking about is how can they resolve their disagreements. And, you know, I think that is is so important. And you're right. I, I'm guessing most times they had the 45 minute pitch and then you get a chance to see if they interact well in a closed, highly tense environments. But in that three hours, the guard comes down, you learn probably quite a bit more about who they are as, as folks. So again, this is a, a good reminder for the audience, man, people, people count. You can have the best presentation in the world, but, you know, make sure you, you got the right team. So now I'm big, big, Believer, and I'm glad to hear that. You know, it makes sense, right? At the end of the day, you still have to check the boxes on certain things, but you know, put the right team together. So maybe, and again, I want to be respectful of your time, so I could probably talk to you for another two hours. But you know, and, and along those lines, so things you're looking for, you're solving a problem, you want the right the team. Is there you know, common mistakes that you see that maybe somebody does have a good idea other than maybe the the people component that you see too often, right? That ends up sinking a, a really good idea. Sounds like you can see through that in some cases, but is there some common mistakes that you would highly recommend folks to avoid as they're going through this
1: process? Oh boy. I mean, that, that, that's a list. Uh, I, I think that's difficult, but, okay. but the biggest, I mean, if I had to tick off some of the biggest things that we see that, that cause blow ups very early on is a, is that you and the co-founder don't really have a true chemistry a true bond that's that's been there you you guys are just trying to work the kinks out right yeah. and uh it means that maybe you you took a sabbatical maybe you went to the university or something and you're doing coursework and found this person and say oh this guy is my uh, soulmate Let, let's go start you know something together i think it's really important that your co-founders are someone that you have worked with before you have worked out your kinks. Okay. And that is kind of really the key thing because by the time you come to us for funding, we are trying to take you from, we're trying to get you ready for a round or a B round. And we are able to take many risks. You know, there's a technology risk, the fact that you're going to get, you know, this ARR or not, what we don't want is you to blow up with your co-founder, okay? So that's, I think, we've seen a lot of stuff uh, where right before we're about to invest, something shows up and say, oh, boy, this blew up, okay? Yeah, red
0: um, flag, okay.
1: Right, it might, be, it, it might be things to do with, hey, I want more equity, and well, why did you wait so long? Like, why did you wait for a year? Or it might be like, hey, you know, I should be the CEO, you should be the CTO, like, come on, guys, I mean, you know, all that stuff. You better work that out. So I think that that is like the topmost uh, point I've made. Number two is essentially founders who maybe have a little bit too high an assessment, optimistic assessment of, you know what, I, I can get my CVsa done even without revenue, just because the technology is so awesome. Like, no, that's not, that's, that's your seed and C plus round. That's not, that's not a. And you know, you might hear stories of somebody got at a 50 million dollar round, with just based on technology. Yes, there is a reason for it. They, they had done three other companies before. they executed like hell on those three companies, returned whatever 20x or 50x to their VC and their VC is is basically funding a 50 million dollar round because it's a, it's a bet on a person that's proven. So I think if you take out those data points, then if you look at the curve, I think, you know, people at A want to look for somewhere at least between a million to $3 million of ARR. And, you know, that's a good point for them to to do an A round in at least the B2B space. Yeah. So I, I think the makeup of the founder being overly optimistic on things like valuation, on things like fundraising or things like, hey, you know, this product is so awesome that I'll be able to sell it myself without thinking through how am I going to get direct enterprise sales force, or maybe a a channel partner from an incumbent, uh, you know, old dinosaur? But hey, you know what? It's it's a channel partner. Or how am I going to get direct to developer marketing? I think those are really important. That's the second thing that we see is that, that essentially causes companies to to fail. I'm, I'm happy to go on, but take me down any rabbit holes you want. <sighs>
0: Well, let's follow up on that because I think it, it's interesting because one of my I don't want to say it's a theory, but I, I know as you know, different stages of growth as a company goes through it, right? As your founder led selling, you're 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 selling through your network, you're probably building some good relationships, you get to the half a million, a million dollar depending on your ticket size. Now all of a sudden you go from one to five and you know one to ten. It's not a full-on operationalize of your business, but it's pretty close. And I've seen on a much smaller scale that founders who are really good passionate about the product, they can get out and meet with, you know, folks like you and I and talk about how it's going to change the world. All of a sudden now I've got to figure out, you know, what's my my marketing message and positioning and how do I get sales and marketing aligned with it? And when do I bring customer success? It's just a whole different ball game. Are you seeing some of the, those first hires then it, to bring in some of those operational type folks that they may not have yet? Or are you, is that, I guess, how big of a hurdle have you seen for for some of these companies as they try to move from that, you know, the early stage to, as I said, more of a, an operationalizing
1: company or scaling company? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, uh, this stuff used to happen at Series B earlier, but we're actually starting to see that companies right before they go up to Series A, they are starting to operationalize all of those steps. They want to make sure that Maybe, even if they don't have a full-time marketing hire, they might have you know a, a person on the team who's gonna get the positioning right. They may have they may not have a VP of sales, but they might essentially get at least a salesperson who's done this you know before where the founder is starting to think about I'm gonna take the baton and then move my process. I'm gonna give this blueprint of how to sell over so that I can demonstrate when I go for the A round that it's not just founder-led sales. This person also closed one or two logos. And then let me also get the work started on channels. So let me bring in a channel development person in and, and train that person because you know when a series A investor looks at my pipeline and says, oh, well, this pipeline is not enough. Oh, well, your, your channel and channel is going to bring this other lift off. And it's actually the cost of sales is is going to be lower because I'm not going to have to hire direct. And then they might also bring in a customer success person in because the enterprise logos are going to require you know solid service because these are your reference logos. They're going to take CVsa reference calls. They're going to take your next customers that are going to come in those reference calls. So you better have amazing customer success. So I'm saying all of this stuff, but it doesn't come for free, right? It means that, it means that you better have a couple of million dollars raised in your C C plus rounds so that you can put these critical pieces in play, correct? If which means now you have to be really careful with your money. What is you can go and pay all of these guys three hundred thousand and four hundred thousand dollars and 400000 dollars right? You've got to figure out, well, I might not bring a VP level or a CXO level, I'll bring in you know a little bit level. But at least they should demonstrate the ability to grow. They should have a passion for not just cash compensation, but passion for like, you know, I'm going to take my career from X to Z. So I think that there is, you know, all of those elements that we are seeing that entrepreneurs are are basically doing for customer success, sales enablement, channel development, all of those things are happening, I think, a lot earlier than traditionally. Yeah. And it makes sense. And it's not, you don't have to over-engineer
0: the Titanic in order to do it. But, you know, the number of folks that I've talked to that, Hey, I'm going to spend, you know, 50,000 on this, you know, Facebook ads or whatever the marketing channel is, you're going to do this from run commercials, but yet they have one person that works part-time that follows up on the leads. (laughs) So there's not even a, a process to say, Hey, we're making the investments. How do we get the, make sure we're getting the ROI because we've got a process that goes in. And then you had mentioned customer success. I mean, it's amazing to me still the number of companies, new, old, that, you know, it's still an afterthought. I mean, especially if you've got reoccurring revenue that, you know, that should be one of your first areas of emphasis is how do I protect what I have and how do I expand it? And, you know, I think that's some of the times it's the process guy coming out in me that says, it doesn't have to re-engineer everything, but But have a plan. (laughs) And I know sometimes it feels like a lot of the startups are like, we're just chasing revenue, which not discounting at all, you need it, but start to think about how you want to to structure this as it goes. So you can actually measure and and process some of it. So
1: exactly right. I mean, you don't want to go to series A and, and show customer churn. Oh, well, that guy churned because, you know, we were not able to deliver what we promised or maybe the experience was not that great. That is, uh, that's basically giving you a flat round if, if, if there's a churn there, or there's a continuation of go back to C and right. iterate come back, right?
0: 100% right. So anyway, I took some of my little tangent for the, the show, but
1: yeah, so this has been
0: fantastic and at some point I'd love to get you on for a, a part two and maybe we can go deeper into some of the, the Series A execution pieces of it but you know what's so i always end this with with two last questions and the first one is you know what's what's next for you and what's next for the company stay the course making the investments what are, what are you guys focused on here the the tail end of 2020 and into next year
1: yeah i'd say we'd be pleasantly surprised by actually uh, we, we thought uh, we're not going to do that many investments but we'd be pleasantly surprised with the incoming both on the Japan side and the US side in terms of the entrepreneurs that have been born in 2020, specifically in the last seven months. So I would encourage all your listeners, I mean, if they're thinking of doing a startup, this is the best time. Uh, The reason is you can get in a couple of million dollars of seed, you can build a product for much lower cost, given a lot of the stuff that's going on with remote work, et cetera. And by the time you come out with your product developed, in 2021 sometime, you know, hopefully a lot of this thing is going to be at least not behind us, but at least a lot more controlled uh, in what we're seeing from today. So I would say, you know, the pace has been a really good, you know, surprise for us. We, we are investing at a much faster clip, specifically in Japan. So what's going to be next for us is I think we might go get Focused. I'm not saying today or, or anytime soon, but I think we might get focused on on possibly raising our uh, Japan fund. You know, earlier than the U.S. fund, there might things might happen like that. There are in, in Japan companies are going public. You know, much faster. So I think we might do you know growth vehicles uh, out there. In the U.S., we are going to be focused uh, a lot on this seed plus. Categories, you know, our investment check sizes of two million and three million. Those are working out absolutely phenomenal. Entrepreneurs are really thinking through cash burn and then making sure that they get ready for Series A with at least, you know, somewhere between two or three million dollars of ARR.
0: Interesting. Now. Yeah. And I agree that there's no better time, right, than the, I think we saw in the financial crisis, what, 08, 09, a lot of really good companies were born out of that. And two, I think the difference, and I love your perspective, one more rabbit hole is, you know, as people are starting to work from home, you know, there's always been kind of a a belief that we would become more remote based, and it was just a slow and steady pace. I can't remember the percentage of companies that still had everybody in large offices, Well, now everybody's remote everybody's starting to really appreciate the flexibility and a true work life balance right i know so a lot of companies are focused on activities versus outcomes and that's a different conversation but are you seeing or you think we're going to see more you know solo type companies or small groups of where we would not not traditionally see companies that you know i do this certain function really well I'm going to work, I'm going to be my own company, I'm going to work with two or three companies to do this, where it used to be design work or some of those other things that could outsource. Are you are you foreseeing any bigger changes into the workforce that, again, where people wouldn't have thought about being their own company now will be, so not in a the sense they're going to go raise funds, but they're working for themselves. So I'm just kind of curious if you've seen that or what your your
1: thoughts, I know you're out in front of a lot of this. I have. I'm on the fence on this one because somehow, personally, I miss that serendipity time, where you you'd be on a whiteboard or in the kitchen making coffee, and you, and you've suddenly spoken to someone on your team. And I I feel like, how do you solve that in a fully remote environment? I'm not fully uh, you know able to appreciate that, but I I do know that a lot of our companies are building remote teams but they are also building remote employee teams rather than uh, rather than outsourcing i think especially when it comes to a key technology you know owning the technology ip i think things like payroll things like uh, you know some of the other things uh, yeah that back office kind of thing sometimes a controller function uh, for a little bit while can be outsourced but if you're going to build some very key IP, if you're going to get ready for CVSA, you better have your FBA, a uh, you know, how w- what kind of margins, how what kind of structure you're gonna build. So you better have somebody you know in, in the team on that one. So outsourcing wise, I'm a big believer that you can use new and types of software and things like that to do your things, and those can be SaaS tools, but you can't have you know, outsource remote teams. Yeah, that never. that doesn't somehow the company culture and things like that doesn't flow through. Yeah, I tend to side with you on that because I've heard the other
0: the option we're going we can build companies that just purely based on execution and doesn't necessarily have the culture the kind of the ebb and flow that if you're a founder and you're passionate about it and you've got people that are passionate about the mission, you know you're going to go through some ups and downs where that team will fight through it. Where if it was just hey I'm going to put the best outsources in this and we're going to go execute go to market we we know what the problem is, it, you, I tend to lean more back to the human side of the the people side is going to overcome some of these things. It's going to be fascinating to see because I know there's going to be companies that try that model and we'll we'll see where it goes and I don't I I, I would bet that they're not going to perform nearly as well as the ones that have the interaction and are tied to the mission versus you know yeah
1: uh, I, I you know. At, at stages of the company we are betting at between zero yeah. to five ARR. I mean, they are going to multiple speed bumps. A competitor is going to come in. Uh, one of their co-founders is going to leave. One of their big logo customers is going to churn. I mean, at that point in time, when the, that is a crisis, an outsourced mercenary is not going to hang on. They, <laughs> an outsourced mercenary, you tell them like, hey, you're going to take a 25% pay cut. Uh, we're going to give you a little bit extra stock. They're going to say bye-bye. Right. so they're not bought into the mission and the culture of, of the founders and the company what they're trying to do so i i tend to agree that that's not going to work
0: so maybe maybe it's when they get to the 100 million and you're really starting to scale with a lot of different folks you can think about it differently but i don't know i just i just think that there's too much tied to you know i, I use my daughter, is an example, 25, right? Super social, loved going into the office, loved working. Now she's been working remote for six, seven, eight months now. And part of it, she's gotten used to, she likes having the flexibility of the no commute, but then she also misses the the non-productive time, if you will, of of meeting with folks. So I think that's where some of these bigger companies are going to have to figure out how to blend those two. So that's why there's so much opportunity in the B2B space beyond technology. People are going to have to figure a lot of this out,
1: right? Yeah. So, so Brett, you know, I think uh, I didn't even know if we addressed all the agenda items that we had said that the podcast would, would address. We, we ended up in a free-flowing, it was an absolute fun conversation, but I feel like I may have not addressed a lot of the topics that you really wanted to go after.
0: No, this was it, a perspective from somebody that sees the opportunity in this space, the people that they're investing in, just so they can think, because it, again, I think too often we get into the thing, well, I'll follow this checklist and I'll get investment and we'll go, right? It's, it's bigger than that. And that's what I wanted to bring somebody that's investing a lot of money, sees the opportunity to to talk about it. So now you've, if anything, I took us off, off path, but those tend to be our best episodes when we get, you know, kind of the unfiltered and perspective of of folks that are, living and breathing this every day and you know we don't know what's coming around the corner here. You, <laughs> I, I wrote a short little post not too long ago. It was like I've, I've stopped questioning what's next in 2020. Let's just take it a day at a time and we'll, we'll think ahead and you know 2021 will be here and maybe there's some sort of normalcy but I, I'm more of a half full than half empty so I'm like it's creating opportunities. How do we go get just don't sit it out. Find a way to, to participate. So Again, long-winded answer to your question. You you've answered, but more than and above and beyond what, what I thought we'd get out of this episode. So, but I can't let you go without one last question. I know your our time is short, but you know what is one thing that you would would highly recommend? And I said this could be personal, professional. You know, something top of mind for you right now.
1: Yeah. So to all the entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast, get to know your investor. Get to know. I don't care how you're going to do that in this pandemic. You know figure out a way that you're going to be with them in person, figure out a way that you're going to look in the eyes, check their expression, look into their soul. This is the person you're going to be with having a relationship in the next eight to 10 years. If you are just taking some somebody who is giving you higher valuation or somebody that just happens to be at a logo firm, I mean, you know, watch out. I mean, the lower firms uh, might have a few billion dollar funds and a C plus or an A is not necessarily meaningful for the success. They might give you high valuation to just win the term sheet, but it doesn't matter. You know, there are good guys there too. Figure out, is this, figure out the founder VC fit. We always talk about product market fit and the founder market fit, all of that stuff. But the founder VC fit is something that we don't look because when when you have absolute alignment on the board, when you're going, you know, with uh, walks, and when you're going and having off board phone calls and text messaging with your board member, that's phenomenal. I mean, that's so much stress off your mind. You don't need to manage inside. You can charge ahead like a like like a true entrepreneur. So try to get that on your on your investor side on the board side.
0: No, I think that's great advice. And the first time we i mean, it makes sense as you say it. But you know, now we've had this conversation. The people side—you're right. It's a—it's a commitment, and if you don't get along, that's going to make it a really difficult time frame. So, you know, ties back to the theme of, you know, the people side of it, make sure that there's a fit. So I love that. All right, Well, thank you very much. And in closing, if there's people that want to reach out, they have the next great idea. I'm sure you've got a process for that. But if people just want to follow you or learn more about what's the best way for them to
1: connect with you. Well, we've got a little thing on, on the website under our contact thing and uh, that that essentially allows you to to submit your great idea. You don't have to check mark and fill out each and everything, but just send in your basics and your email. And uh, I think at least what we'll tell you is we'll send an email. If it's not a fit, it'll be a quick no. Okay. Uh, but it won't be a hanging thing that just sits, you know, on the internet. That too many companies
0: leave you hanging. So
1: yeah, our, our website is dnxdn as in nc, x as in x-ray, dot vc.
0: We'll link to it in the show notes and all the good things so people can find it. So awesome. Well, Q, really appreciate your time. I know we took you over. So I think you know, from my side, it was well worth it. Hopefully you get something out of this conversation as well. And you know, we'll look to uh, catch up with you in the future.
1: Thank you, Brad. Have a great rest of your day. You too.